Happy Mother's Day. Wow. Uh, look, I'm all dressed up and they're like, where's the babies? <laughs> we want to do baby dedication today. We could dedicate our young children, our families to the Lord and see how grace can serve them. We can still do that, but it's not the same. But I thought, I got to get dressed up for Mother's Day. This is a great uh, sermon for Mother's Day. I am so excited about it. Uh, when you, when we're, we're doing the survey uh, through the Bible and we're looking at how God is working throughout human history to redeem people, bring people back to the way they were meant to be. And you, when you read through the Bible, I'm sure you've seen this, there are times in the Bible, even epics in the Bible, where you start to wonder if there's any hope for mankind. And then God. And then God. And that's the story of the Bible. It, the story of the Bible is about who God is and what he's done. And what you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's your most important attribute. As a matter of fact, how you define God, it defines you. And today we're going to look at two words that are used in the Bible to define God. These words help us understand who he is and what motivates him. The first word, hesed. Hesed. It's a Hebrew word. It's a very difficult word to translate. Sometimes the words that will show up in your Bible will be kindness or loyalty or faithfulness. Those are gentle words. Hey, those are words like, like a kitten. But if this kitten has said were to yawn, it would rattle the foundations of a castle. And because of the strength of this word hesed, Sometimes they'll translate the word uh, covenant loyalty or steadfast love. And the reason is, is because hesed is expensive. It costs. It always costs. It's deep love. And with deep love, there is deep grief. It's like mountains and valleys. With every mountain, there's a valley. And this hesed, it is the highest peaks and therefore it has the, the lowest valleys. If you choose to love someone this way, this covenant loyalty, it will be your highest calling, but you might find it the most expensive decision, pardon me, decision that you make. Here's a good description of Hesed. Hesed, it is costly, selfless, loyal love expressed in actions. Costly, selfless, loyal love expressed in actions. And that's just the definition, but that's not the meaning. People that experience Hesed in their life, it changes their identity. It changes the way they view all of the world because grace transforms. Hesed is grace. It is, it is a gift of this loyal love and it transforms. And people that experience this, they want you to know about the transformation. They put this Hebrew word, it's a beautiful word artistically, they put it on jewelry. Some of them, some people will literally tattoo this word onto their bodies. And if you find someone with this tattoo Hesed on their body, you ask them uh, that story because that's a story of selfless, loyal love that changed their life. That'll be a fun story. The second word that we want to look at to understand who God is, is some form of the word redeem. Redeem, redemption, redeemer. That definition, action to, to, to gaining or regaining possession in exchange for a payment, a clearing of a debt, buying one's freedom. 
Again, that's the definition. Those are cold accounting terms. But if a person has experienced redemption, they want the world to know about it. They want to show off their redeemer. They're going to make a statue, a huge, big statue that is on top of a mountain (laughs) so that everyone can see the power of redemption and the beauty of that redeemer. Now, these two words, hesed and redeemer, they excite each other. And it's in this that we find out about God, his nature, and what motivates him. You better sit down for this. (laughs) Here it goes. It is the hesed of God that compels Yahweh to seek our redemption. See that? It is the deeply devoted kindness of God that causes God to want to seek out and save us. It is the loyal love of God that leads Yahweh to to incur a priceless payment to set us free from our slavery of sin and our shame so that we might have honor. God wants you to appreciate this about his nature, this hesed that leads to redemption because he knows that that grace will transform you. He wants to have us enjoy this in all of our lives. Become, become like Christ in all of life. How? This hesed is applied to all of life. Now, God so wants us to fully grasp that as much as possible without experiencing it ourselves, right? We can, but to see it, he, he paints a story. And that story to understand his nature is the book of Ruth. That's what we're going to look at today. It is a book that is dense with with beauty and emotion and theology. It is a brilliant work of theological art. It is about the hesed nature of God that causes him to redeem us. There's four characters in the book of Ruth. There is Naomi. There is Ruth the Moabite. She's almost always called the Moabite. More on that later. The hero of the story is a man named Boaz. Keep your eye on him because he is going to be like Christ and show us that Hesed. And then the fourth character is God himself, Yahweh. Now, what's very peculiar about this story is that the narrator only shows God entering the stage. He only steps on the stage two times in chapter one and chapter four. All the other times, he's just quietly working behind the scenes. He's a ninja in this one. He doesn't leave a mark anywhere, but he's ruling creation as he always does as a sovereign God. And so the author is going to be using these key words that he wants us to listen for. He wants us to watch for these things because this is how God normally rules quietly, subtly, powerfully. But you have to keep your eye on this. And he wants us to see this in our own lives as well, because that's the way God normally works. The context of the book of Ruth is essential to understand it. The first sentence says, in the time, in the days when the judges ruled, and you think, oh no, you remember reading the book of Judges, I hope? Macbeth (laughs) might have said it this way, every morn, a new widow howls, a new orphan cries. Every morn, a new sorrow strikes heaven's gate. That's the book of Judges. Every day, new sorrows. It's a 
perpetual digression into hell. As, as the nation of Israel is ruled with dark, bloody days, overseen by what would be called warlords today. The promised land in the book of Judges. The land flowing with milk and honey from the previous book, Joshua, is now sterile, barren. It is infertile. It's a hopeless time. And because of that, because we are running out of hope, it's interesting. The book of Ruth introduces a new word to the Bible. This is the first time this word will be used, and it's needed. The word, hope. Hope hasn't been used yet, and now it's needed, desperately needed, in the time when the judges ruled. Chapter 1 of the book, book of Ruth talks about how this family of Naomi and her husband are struggling to survive. 1-1 one, one says this, In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem of Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. They're struggling for life. They're trying to just be fed and they go to Moab. That's key. You hear that word, you go, oh no. It's a neighboring uh, community. It's actually a neighboring, neighboring country. But in the eyes of Israel, this nation is cursed. They are constantly in some context of war with Moab, either a real war or a cold war. And the reason is the origin of Moab, is, 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 its origin is from an incestuous, this people group is from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. They feel like they are cursed by God and they act cursed by God and they hate Israel and Israel hates them back, but they're willing to go there because there might be food there. And while they're there, Naomi and her husband and their two sons, the husband dies. The boys, they become men and they marry. And the, and the story continues, but it's not good. And after they had lived there for 10 years, both sons also died. And look what it says, and Naomi was left. She was just left. She was left without her two sons and her husband. 10 years married, and neither of these boys are able to produce an heir, a son, someone to take care of Naomi, and someone to own the land back home. Naomi is left. She has nothing. She is hopeless. And this is when the first mention, there's only two times, of where Yahweh enters the stage. Ruth chapter 1 where it says, And when Naomi heard in Moab that Yahweh had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law daughter prepared to return home from there. And, and here's what happens. And Naomi says to her two daughters-in-laws, look, look, go back to each other. Uh, go back, each of you, uh, to your mother's homes. Say, may, may Yahweh show you kindness. There's that hesed word. Show you kindness as you have shown me hesed kindness to your dead husbands and to me too. May Yahweh grant each of you, that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. This is Naomi showing Hesed, 
loyal, committed love to these two daughters-in-laws. She realizes there's not much of anything for her going back to Israel, but, the, but they have some kind of a hope if they stay in Moab. At least if they stay in Moab, they could maybe remarry. They could maybe even move in with their parents again. But if they go with Naomi, they'll be absolutely alone. And, 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 and Naomi wants what's best for them. So he just says, please, please. She says, please, Moabite widows, stay here, start over, move on. There's what you should do. And because of their great love for one another, there is great grief because Hesed is costly. The higher the love, the lower the valley. And so look what it says. And they wept out loud again. And then Orpha, that's one of the daughters, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth's not going to leave. He, or she's not going to stay there. She wants to leave with Naomi. And so look, she says to Naomi, or Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now look how uh, like forceful Ruth's reply is. She literally says, stop afflicting me. That's what it says. It ought to, but she says this instead. This is how it is interpreted. And then Ruth replied to her, do not urge me to leave you and turn back from you again. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, there I will be buried. And then she says, may God deal with me ever so severely that even death could separate us. Wow. That's forceful, loyal, committed love. And what can Naomi say? She says, and when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is Ruth Hesed. She's, she is willing to migrate from Moab to Israel. This is the fundamentals of migration. You migrate to a better place, but she's not. She's not going from a bad place to a good place. She's going from a bad place to a terrible place. She has uh, the opportunity to go to Israel and, and experience poverty and rejection and even violence against her. That's clear in this passage. And why is she doing that? She's doing that because of her sacrificial love towards her mother-in-law. She knows this older woman needs someone to care for her and she's willing to risk her very life to provide that love. And her life is literally in danger. Three times in this story, people that love Ruth and are caring for her, they say, look, you need to stay close to this super, certain people group because, because if you don't, you'll be assaulted because you're a Moabite slave widow. This is an expensive decision for Ruth. They arrive back. Verse 19 says, And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because the women exclaimed, Could this be Naomi? The harshness of life, the compounding grief. Naomi has aged not well. 
And so Naomi summarizes her life story like this. Don't call me Naomi. Her name means sweet. She said, call me Mara. That means bitter. Call me Mara, bitterness, because Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. I had a husband and two sons. I had hope. I had a future. And she says, and then Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me sweet? Yahweh has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Boom. Hopeless. That's how the chapter somewhat ends. And then verse 22 says, and, and, and this is the summary. And Naomi returned from Moab, to, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Of course she is. The daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem. It just so happened that when they returned, it was barley harvest season beginning. Chapter 1 leaves us with a just so happens. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth talking to Naomi saying, hey, I need to provide food for us. Can I go and glean some fields? And she's given permission to do that. And gleaning the fields is something that we need to know to understand what's happening. There was a a command from God on how to care for people in poverty. And the way to do that is when the harvesters would come through, they could first only make one pass. They couldn't make multiple passes to make sure they caught all the, the grain or the fruit or whatever it might be. And also they, didn't, they weren't able to work the outside edges either. And by leaving that produce on the outside edges and sometimes in the trees and bushes, that provided for the poor people. But it was still hard labor for them, mind you. And so... Ruth is asking, should I go and glean these fields? And she does that. And what's interesting in this series here of, of uh, the, the story being told, the author is brilliant in his subtlety because this is God quietly ruling creation. He's going to use some Hebrew words here to just say, you know, it's just a lot of dumb luck happening to these two ladies in this series of events here. He's going to say it just so happened that when they got back, it was harvest season. It just so happened that when Ruth goes to the fields, the field belongs to Boaz. And it just so happens that Boaz is a relative of theirs. And it just so happens that Boaz was visiting the very field where Ruth was just so happening harvesting. <laughs> coincidence. Uh, you heard this phrase? Coincidence is God's way of ruling the universe anonymously. In this story, he wants us to see that there's a lot of fingerprints from God left over. Let me read it to you. So she went out and entered the field and began gleaning behind the harvesters. As it turned out, just so happened, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of her father-in-law. Just then, so happened, Boaz arrived at Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. These are the first words of Boaz. This is his introductions. Yahweh, be with you guys. And they say, Yahweh, bless you too, boss. And then Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, uh, who does this young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she's a Moabite. But she's come back from Moab with Naomi. She said, could you please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind that the, the harvesters left? And she, she came into the fields and remained here all morning until now. Look, she's only taken a short rest in the shelter. This encounter between the first ex exposure of, of, of Boaz and Ruth is what's called a social disparity. Boaz, from the tribe of Judah, 
that's a good tribe to come from. And he's a wealthy landowner in contrast to the description here, Ruth. She is a Moabite. She's cursed. She's a widow. She's damaged goods. And she is in abject poverty. And Boaz is going to look at her and the men say, she's a hard worker. And Boaz is going to be a different kind of man. If you read the story of of Judges and the way men treated women in that book, you can't read those stories to your children. It's hard to read them as an adult. You want to turn your head and say, what's happening here? And in this context of Judges, this man looks at this woman and sees her hessedness towards her mother-in-law and is drawn towards that. Very interesting. There's no descriptions of what Ruth looks like. You don't know if she's pretty or plain, and it doesn't matter to Boaz. He looks at her soul and says, I love the way she loves her mother-in-law and her family, her family that she's caring to. She looks, and he looks at that and loves that. And here's what he does for her. He protects her. He says, okay, listen, Ruth, you need to stay just in my fields so you won't be injured. I want to provide for you as well. I want you to have water. You don't have to drink it out of the puddles on the ground. I want you to use the water jugs that my workmen are using. And then Ruth says, why would you do that for a a foreigner? And here's what he says. He says, I love the way you love. I love the hesed in you. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland. You left everything, it cost you everything and came to live with a people that you do not know before. And so he prays for her. Listen to this righteous man's prayer for this woman. He says, may Yahweh repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings that you've come over and taken refuge. And then he honors her. He says, you need to eat with us. And then when he serves her, it's like he puts way too much on the plate. And she goes home with a doggy bag for her mother-in-law. And then not only that, before she goes home, he, he tells the guys that are working the field, look, you know, like you don't have to be really great at what you're doing today. As a matter of fact, if you could leave a couple of bags out for her or knock over a bag for her to pick up, could you make her, her gleaning the field a little bit easier? <laughs> Listen, this this section right here, this is an application for us because the author wants us to know because of the way he's writing it, this is how God works. This is is a story that is absent of grand miracles and visions and, and answers to prayer. This is how God works quietly. How does he work quietly? Through men of God and women of God. Every believer is a minister, always has been. Every believer is a minister. Listen to the verse in Ephesians 2.10 that we live for around here. We are his workmanship, right, created to do good works in Christ. That's how he's sovereignly ruling, that he is arranged before time. Before time, God's sovereign mind was saying, we have some sovereign actions to do, so I will build workmen to do my will. That's how he works. And so what, what, what Boaz does here is he prays this prayer for Ruth and he says, God, Yahweh, bless her. Protect her, Yahweh. Provide for her, Yahweh. And then he blesses her and protects her and provides for her. 
I'll be the hand of God in this story. You know? So even right now in our lives, in the context that we're living in, you know, you can pray for your neighbors, absolutely do that, but maybe you could be the answer to that same prayer. Invite, pray for your neighbor to be invited to an event and then ask your neighbor if they would like to join you in some kind of event. Story continues. Ruth goes home and she's carrying a duffel bag of food back home to Naomi. And Naomi, the language is beautiful because she, Naomi can't believe it. She stutters. She's like, where, where did you get that? How did that happen? What's happening? What's going on? And here's like this, the, the Hebrew is just beautiful the way this is written. And then Ruth told the mother-in-law about the, the one whose place that she'd been working. And she said, listen, it's building up for suspense. And so and the name of the man whose field I was working in was Boaz. Boom. Wow. The climax of that sentence, that paragraph, is his name Boaz. And then Naomi responds, Yahweh bless him. Naomi said to his daughter-in-law, God has not stopped showing his loving kindness, his hesed, to the living and to the dead. She's added, this man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Wow, what just happened there? Why is Naomi so excited about this? Because Boaz is a, what's called a kinsman redeemer. There's a phrase in the Old Testament, guardian redeemer sometimes it's called, family redeemer, kinsman redeemer. It's an official title. It's, it's the way the culture worked back then because if a man died and, and left uh, a wife, a widow and children and land, if no one were to take care of that, he would lose, those people would lose out on, on their ability to be provided and protected, but also the land would, would end up being sold off and lost forever. That family, that family line would, would lose their land and it couldn't be regained. And so they set up a system called the Kinsman Redeemer and the, the, a family member could buy back that land and keep it in their family name. But to be a Kinsman Redeemer, it required three things. One, you had to be the nearest relative to that family. You had to have the resources to buy the land. And then third, you had to have the desire to do it. You had to have the resolve. And Boaz, Naomi realizes that she realizes that Boaz is a close relative, is a wealthy man. Will he do it? Will he be that kinsman redeemer? We'll see. But listen, friends. I think Naomi is starting to wear a little bit of hope. She's starting to see God working in her life in spite of all these things happening around her. Chapter three. Chapter three is, in the story, the way it's written, there is a spectacular sophistication to the symmetry in which the story is written, almost to the word. And chapter three is the hinge of the story. It's the, it's the peak where it, the, it, the whole storyline swings on this one way or another. This is tense music being applied here. In chapter three, verse one, it says, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, we must find a home for you. There's that hesed again. I'm caring for you where you will be well provided for. And and this is the plan. So Naomi comes up with a plan, and it's a risky plan. And the plan is that, that Ruth should 
wash up and, and put on some perfume and put on, they're not wealthy people, put on that one dress that you have that's nice. And I want you to see, sneak into the, man, the men's camp where, where the, the harvesters hang out. And I want you to find Boaz there when he's asleep. And I want you to sleep at, his, at the foot of his, at his feet. And then when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he asks what's going on, you propose to him. You tell him that he is our kinsman redeemer. And here it is. This is the application of how to live life in the sovereignty and the free will that we enjoy. The sovereignty of God is they're, they're making this plan that has great risks. There's seven ways this goes terribly bad for both of these women. There is one way it works, and that's a God thing. And so this is what faith looks like. It's a plan in action. It's trusting in God's quiet miracles. And Ruth responds, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and sees Ruth there and says, who are you? And she says, could you be, would you be our kinsman redeemer? Could you save? And here's what's interesting. She says, could you save our family? There she is caring about other people. And Boaz sees her hesed, her loyal love for that family, and is overwhelmed. Look, look, look how he says, look what he calls her and see how he exalts her and how he looks at her soul and her character. Yahweh bless you, my daughter, he replies. This kindness, this hesed is greater than that which I saw that you showed earlier. You, you have not run after younger men, whether they're rich or poor. And, and now, my daughter, don't, do not be afraid. I will do all that you ask. All the people of my town will know that you are a woman of noble character. A woman of noble character. That is the definition of Proverbs 31. A noble woman is. A whole chapter, the last chapter of Proverbs, is dedicated to the definition of a noble woman. He calls her, this Moabite woman, a noble woman. And it's just such a beautiful story. And he says, I will do this. I'll be your kinsman redeemer. But the story continues. There's tension added. He says, oh, but wait, I'm not your nearest relative. And he says, he says this though. He says, you, for, for, you know, I am willing to do this surely as Yahweh lives. I will do all that you told me to do. And so chapter three ends with Naomi and Ruth back home, waiting and trusting in the hesedness of Boaz. Chapter four is a beautiful story because it starts with uh, Boaz uh, gathering up 10 elders at the, the, the county courthouse, if you would, and, and the nearest relative that gets the name, what's his face? It's in Hebrew and it rhymes, but they're mocking him. They're just going to call him What's-His-Face. And when he walks by the courthouse, Boaz says, hey, 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 what's your face? Um, hey, listen, you need to know that you're first in line to be the kinsman redeemer and you need to redeem Naomi's household. And in doing that, you'll be granted all of uh, her, her, her husband's land. And, and it says, What's-His-Face said, well, I will redeem it then. And then Boaz says, in a very clever way, and then Boaz says in verse 5, and then Boaz says, uh, okay, but on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, and in order to maintain the name of the dead man, uh, with the dead with his property. 
You're going to have to marry the Moabite woman. And you know what? Uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, she doesn't go by sweet anymore. She calls herself bitterness. So your mother-in-law is going to be bitterness and you have to marry a Moabite. And so he just says, yeah, let me pray about that. Okay, no, I can't do that. Look what it says. And this, the guardian redeemer said, the guardian redeemer doesn't have an What's his face says, uh, then I cannot redeem it. It is because I might endanger my own estate. You can redeem it yourself because I cannot. You know why they call him what's his face? Because he has no hesed. It was going to cost him something. And so the story goes on. Boaz says this in front of all the elders. And Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of her husband. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite. Yeah, my wife the Moabite. He's bragging about that as my wife. I will give her that honor in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among the family or from the hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. That's Hesed. That is costly, selfless, loyal love expressed in actions. I will marry this Moabite woman and take this mother-in-law named Bitterness, and I will carry on their name, not my name, I will carry on their name so that their name will not be forgotten in this town. And the elders agree to this. Here's how the story goes. And the elders agree to this and they said, you know what? We're a witness to this. May Yahweh, they love seeing Hesed. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, the founders of our faith, who together built up the family of Israel. May you also be famous in all of Bethlehem. Through your offspring, may Yahweh give you by this woman a family like, like Perez and, and Tamar that Tamar gave Judah. And so the story continues. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Here it is. The second time God enters this stage. And when he made love to her, Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women, they said this about Naomi. Praise be to Yahweh who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel, this little boy. And, and he, will, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age and your daughter-in-law who loves you. And she is better than, to you than seven sons has given him birth. Story, this story ends with Naomi holding her grandson. His name is Obed. Someone says, hey, bitterness. <laughs> no, no, I'm not bitterness. You don't call me bitterness. You call me Naomi. I'm sweet. Really? Why is that? Grace. Grace transforms. Hesed. It's tattooed on my smile. I have tasted this and it has changed my life. Is this not a beautiful, brilliant story about the faithful love of Yahweh God that compels him to seek out our redemption? When I read this story, there are at least three ways we can apply this to our lives. And the first one is just the idea that faith is looking up. It is not faithlessness is staring down at our circumstance. And, and in Ruth's life, there was this constant and continual, look up, Ruth, look up. 
you know, there's more happening. I know it doesn't look like it right now, but there's, God is quietly ruling all of creation. You are not alone. You are not alone. Look up. I will provide for you a man, a godly man. Look up, look up. You're not barren. Ten years with a husband. You are not barren. I will open your womb. I will give you a child. You will have a son. You will have a grandson. You will have a great grandson. Look up even higher, Ruth, because I call him a great grandson because he will be great. You'll die. You won't see this happen. But if you keep looking up, you'll see that this great grandson will become the greatest king in Israel's history. That's what you have. You have, you have, you have no shame. You're not forgotten. Listen, in the story of Ruth, this is a beautiful part of it. In the Feast of Pentecost, they read the book of Ruth every year at the Feast of Pentecost. And here's another fun part. In, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the way they put the books in order, after Proverbs, in the last chapter is Proverbs 31, and Proverbs 31 is about an honorable woman. You know what comes after that? Ruth. <laughs> she is honored among all men and women. After Proverbs 31, now read Ruth. This is what you look like. Lift up your head, Ruth. Lift it up even higher still. Look into all eternity. Because your great-grandson is not where this ends. It ends with you being in Matthew, the Jewish story of Jesus. You end up in that genealogy. You are the mother of David. You are the mother of Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah. Look up. Faith is looking up. It's picking your head up and looking at the quiet work of God and how we're playing it out in, in the monotony of our suffering. So how about you? Do you need to look up? Ruth tells us faith is looking up. The second application in this book that we need to take home with us is, I mentioned before, this is how God rules quietly. This is how he, he runs his universe in silence. Two times God shows up in this story. Once at the beginning where the the land is sterile and he makes it fertile. And then at the end, chapter four, where Ruth is sterile and he makes her fertile. In between, what's happening? No burning bushes, no parting of Red Seas. There's no dreams, there's no voices. Ordinary people living somewhat mundane lives in a very dark and bitter time. But in this story, the believers are ministers, and they know that. They're just bringing the hesed of God into other people's lives. That's what they're doing. Every believer's a minister. Here's how God works. He doesn't care about your abilities. He cares about your availabilities. It's whether or not you will trust and obey him. He, it's, about, it's about obedience, not talent, not wealth. It's, it's not how much you give so much. It's, it's whether when you hear the voice of God to give something, do you give that amount? Uh, it's, it's whether if you feel like God is asking you to, to talk to someone, he doesn't care if you're eloquent as much as he cares that you're obedient. Here's how this works, Grace. It's being faithful and available and teachable. It's hearing God's voice and obeying God's voice. That's how God rules in this story. 
That's how he rules today. The third thing is the power of this. Where you think about God is the most important thing about you and how you define God defines you. And this story says this, the Hesed of God compels Yahweh to seek our redemption. This story of Ruth is literally the story of redemption. Boaz is a Christ figure. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He is our family. That's why he was born of a woman, so he could represent us. Does he have the resources? Yes, he does. He was without sin. He had the power to conquer death. Did he have the resolve? He obeyed the Father to the point of death, death on a cross. Ruth is the gospel story. We are Naomi. We are a cursed, you know, honorless people, a person. We are a widow who has no power. We are in abject poverty. And God comes in and says, because of my hesedness, I am compelled to redeem you. And I give you my honor. (laughs) Ruth the Moabite will be my wife. I will give you power. And I, I will give you my wealth. Hesed of God compels Yahweh to seek our redemption. The Bible does not say that God sent his only son to forgive us our sins. It said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. For God was so hesed, loyal, devoted, faithful. It compelled him to send his only son so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. That's the nature of God. And God would like this, for us to take this as almost like a, become like Christ in all of life, but to believe that salvation story in our own life. Many of you have had that, but to apply it to every part of our life. It's like, like taking the, the cure of sin, right? Taking it orally, right? And it's in our digestive system. And then God says, yeah, but like, let's apply it to every part of our lives. Sometimes maybe it's not taking there. And so to your anger or your vanity or your, your passions and lust, whatever it might be, he says, like, haven't you lived with that long enough? I can redeem that too. I can redeem that too. The Hesed of God compels him to want us to become like Christ in all of life, in all circumstances of life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's a beautiful, brilliant, theological work of art. Let's pray. And who shall separate us from the love, the Hesed of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangers of the sword? Nothing shall. Lord, we are so grateful, overwhelmed with gratitude for your love for us. Let that love be what transforms us from the inside out. Let your redemptive work on the cross where Jesus died for our sins and rose for our righteousness. We inherit his righteousness like like Ruth inherited Boaz's righteousness. Lord, I'd ask that that would cause us to be different types of people so that when we hear your voice and we pray prayers for people, we say, maybe, just maybe I'm the answer to that prayer. God, use me as your workman to do your will 
that you arranged before time. Let us be a church like that all around this city, all around this world. Let us be the means of expressing this faithful, loyal, covenantal, costly love to your creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.